0: Um, I don't know how your week went. Uh, Did did you all have a busy week, crazy week? Yes. So can you just take a minute? uh, Because I know I did too. Can you just take a minute and and just, if you feel comfortable doing it, just close your eyes, take a minute and just pray. Uh, We're just going to have some silence. I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Does that sound good? Okay. God, sometimes we are um, uncomfortable in the silence, and we're uncomfortable in the quietness, um, but so often it's there that we find you. I pray this morning that maybe for most of us, I know for me, but for many of us, uh, this week has been all over the place and crazy, and there's decisions that have to be made, questions that are being asked, all these kind of things, and so it may make it very difficult to focus this morning. Um in worship of you, to really fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. So uh, help us with that. Uh, Guide us with that. Uh, Give us peace so that way we can uh, rest into you as John uh, laid at your chest uh, during the last Passover meal that he would share with you. So too would we lay ourselves on your chest this morning uh, to have our hearts syncopated with yours and to know what it means to worship you um, in truth, um, to receive the grace that you so freely give and to find freedom, not chains, um, in you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Um, so I, had, I really missed you all. I was Who was I talking with? with yeah, that's good. Um, I was talking with somebody this morning. It's, I've never been gone for two weeks in a row, which was kind of weird. Um, it was needed, and I had a really beautiful time in Omaha with Tom, um, with our LCMC family, but also with my blood family. Um, I didn't realize how close my grandmother was to 94. Um, She turns 94 in January, and you wouldn't ever imagine that she was turning 94. Um, It was beautiful and a heart-wrenching time. I got to see cousins that I haven't seen in over 10 years, and we're all adults now, sharing adult stories and that kind of stuff, so it was really weird, Um, but it was a beautiful time. And it provided me an opportunity to just kind of reflect. You know, you have those moments in life where uh, maybe you've just been going, going, going that you really can't survey. And I've talked in the past about that's why the Sabbath is so important, is because rest allows us to remember. It helps us to really look backwards as life is so much about looking forwards. Um, So this was an opportunity for me to kind of look backwards and also see what God's doing in my midst today. Um, And then as I started processing about, obviously in the context of LCMC, it's an association that House of God is a part of. What is God doing in LCMC? What is God doing in my personal life? But then as I look to all of you and the stories that you tell me, the narrative that God's working in your life as you join him, what is he doing in us as individuals? But then also what is he doing with House of God? So this morning, that's really what I wanna focus on. And I chose some interesting passages Um, I try to bridge it together, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but really it's in the framework of what God's doing, I think, at the LCMC that I think that you all as a wider body need to be aware of, uh, what God's doing in in us personally, and then again, what God's doing or what he may be doing in House of God. So the first passage um, that Marlene read read was actually the Luke passage. I'm going to start with the first Kings passage, Um, but one of the things that Um, that LCMC, they're going through this really kind of unique time where they're transitioning leadership. So Lutheran congregations on mission for Christ. That's who we're a part of as an association. So Tom and I went out there to really see what God was doing in the midst of LCMC. So last year, the theme was growing up. This year, it was listening up. And it was basically the same thing two years in a row. It's, a, it's the same sort of challenge um, that I think God is giving us uh, as a denomination, but also as an association. So just to kind of give you some context, um, maybe it's a surprise to you, maybe it isn't a surprise to you, but as a whole, the Lutheran denomination is in significant decline. Um, that's just the reality that we face. It's in a decline. Now, that does not mean, however that Christianity is in a decline. It just means that our context that we're familiar with, that we know that we worship in, and in spirit and truth, is in a decline. I would say, however, um, that Christianity as a whole is actually growing. Um, But it's not in the Western US context. It's happening in South America, it's happening in Africa, it's happening in Asia, Uh, There's really some unbelievable reports of what's going on in Iran and Iraq right now um, of church growth that is exponentially developing, um, and it's mostly in houses and amongst women, which is really interesting as well. So to say that the church is in decline would be a lie. It's not in decline. The Lutheran denomination is in decline. And so the LCMC has really been asking some hard questions about why it is in decline. Um, and as they were asking these questions and as they were really, I mean, this, and you could, I definitely would love for you to talk to Tom about this, which I'm sure you'll love. Um, but you can feel free to ask me because we were, we were the representatives of House of God. So we were your eyes and ears and we did a lot of listening. Um, and one of the things that we really, um, at least that I'll speak for me, I won't speak for you, uh, that I kept on seeing challenge after challenge after challenge. I was saying, this is our reality and what are we going to do about it? And the only way that we can do something about it is by listening to God. It's not going to be doing more programs. It's not going to be doing more stuff. It's going to be what is God saying to us and what are we going to do about it? And so as I was reflecting on the shift, uh, I put here in my notes, LCMC shift happens um, because it does. First Kings is actually what I thought of. Um, and I want to I use that because there's a context that I think we need to be aware of in the Old Testament that we need to be aware of in the New Testament. And then we are part of the Reformation church. And there's these shifts that happen throughout the centuries. And I want to talk about that for a minute. So if you want to follow along in 1 Kings, feel free to do that. Um, how many of you, just so I can see, because well, generally speaking, our emphasis is the New Testament, right? Like we talk a lot about the New Testament. How many of you are familiar with the story of Elijah and Elisha? Could you just raise your hand? So, huh? Okay. Like, you know, more or less, many of us know, and that's not abnormal. Um, I can't possibly cover the ridiculously crazy uh, life of Elijah, you know, in a few minutes. So uh, my suggestion would be, if you haven't read First Kings in a while, to do it, because it was really, really interesting. But to give you some context, um, First Kings is really a book about uh, the kings of Israel and basically how, how horrible they were. Uh, not just as people, as individuals, but for the nation of Israel. They were just really, really, really bad. If you go through before chapter 19, you'll start to see, like, a list of various different uh, reigns of kingdoms. And basically, the thing that marks each one of them is that they continue in this historical theme, like, centuries ago, somebody was in sin, a king was in sin. And then they had a son or somebody else took over the kingship, and then they sinned, and it was worse sin, and then so on and so forth, right? Like, just this thread of ridiculous sin that just kept on getting worse and worse. So in the midst of all of this sin, uh, which is from a, a, an economical level, it's from a political level, it's from a relational level, uh, in comes Elijah, and Elijah is a prophet of God. So he's the one that's coming in and saying y'all are really messing this thing up. (laughs) Like, this is not good. And so, generally speaking, uh, and I know I've talked about prophets before, but generally speaking, prophets are the people that are just kind of out of the ordinary. Um, They speak direct and difficult truth, but they do it in weird ways, and God does weird things with them. Now, I could continue to unpack the life of Elijah, but I would love for you to read it this week. And I will tell you, it's going to be as good as any movie you've watched or novel you've read. It's crazy what goes on in the life of Elijah. But where we pick up uh, in the life of Elijah is kind of towards the end. So he's been a prophet for a while, and he's been challenging the sin of Israel and the surrounding nations, the pagan worship. He's been doing that, and he's worn out. Like, there's this transition period. That's going on. And that's when God speaks to him. So this is where I'm picking up. It's in the um, chapter 19 from 1 Kings. So he, he's fleeing in chapter 19. He's fleeing Jezebel. We've heard that name before, I'm sure. Um, so he's fleeing. He's meeting God. And I love that's verse 11. It says, Elijah meets God at Horeb. And then there, God says to him to go find Elisha. So that's what he does because he's a, he's a prophet that listens to God. So he goes, verse 19, so he set out from there, so he's setting out from the mountain, or at Horeb, excuse me, and he, he finds Elisha. And notice Elisha, just like, have you, have you noticed Elisha when Marlene was reading? Elisha was just going about his daily business, just like the disciples, right? How often were, was Jesus encountering people in the midst of their ordinary circumstances? Elijah just happens to be plowing. And, and clearly, he's somebody that's trusted in his family because he's plowing with a significant amount of oxen. Right? He has a life that he's leading. And all of a sudden, this prophet, who chances are, because we can see, for example, with John the Baptist, Elijah was probably looking pretty weird, a little wacky. He had been on the run, probably stinks more than most. And he's coming up while he's plowing the field. And his introduction is basically the mantle that it's talking about is his coat. So Elisha's just going along with the oxen doing his thing, probably sees this weird guy. Maybe he's aware of who he is, maybe he isn't, word travels fast. And his introduction isn't like, Shalom, how are you today? It's he takes his mantle off, his coat, and he throws it on Elisha. And that's a prophetic symbol. So here is this ordinary man doing ordinary things and this prophet of God who is really in stark contrast to the nations around him, who's living in the way that the Lord decrees and desires against the rest of the nation. I mean, he's fighting, fighting for the Lord through truth. And he takes this mantle, which is representative, so it's a prophetic symbol of his power and authority given to him from God, and he walks by and throws it on Elisha. It's like the modern-day mic drop, right? Right? <laughs> Like he's like, it's the passing on of authority and power. So he's doing that. And Elisha, um, his response, so I'll just continue to read verse 20. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah. So, I mean, can you imagine the scene? He doesn't say anything. He just does like this drive-by mantle tossing and keeps going. And can you imagine Elisha's just standing there? What's? Huh? And so he runs after him, and he says, like, notice his reaction isn't, why did you do that? W- what are you doing? What is his reaction? I'll you. Yeah, I'll follow you. First, I've got to, like, tell my family. <laughs> and so actually, uh, the, Elisha's reaction is, is symbolic also. I mean, it was actual, but it was symbolic too. Is What does he do with the oxen? Is he slaughters them? And then he feeds his family, and then he leaves. And then that was him breaking away from every single thing that he, that he knew, everything that was a part of his life before, to take up this mantle and to fill it in. Like um, one of my favorite moments as a dad, sometimes it's annoying, but a lot of times it's cute. Um, both uh, Judah and Titus, not so much Judah right now, but they always try on my shoes, right? And they're like clumping around generally falling over, right? I wear a size 13 shoe. Uh, My children do not, (laughs) So, but the reality is, I mean, we were just talking this morning, Titus is going to fill right into his name. He's going to be a bruiser, right? Like, he's going to be a big boy, but he's not there yet. He can't fill my shoes. He will one day, but today is not that day, nor will Judah. And, and if you've ever been around kids, they do the dress-up and stuff like that. Why? Because they're imitating these people that they respect and love and regard as safe and as true and as faithful. So him putting on my shoes is like saying, Daddy, I want to be like you. And so here we see this, this story of Elisha and Elisha, where he's putting on this mantle, but surely the mantle doesn't quite fit. Because it wasn't meant for Elisha, it wasn't made for Elisha, he needs to grow into it. So this process of from 1 Kings into Second Kings is really Elijah teaching, modeling, imitating. It's a relationship. And it's a challenging one because the prophet's life is not an easy life to live. They're on the run a lot. They're making statements and declarations that people don't want to hear. Because generally speaking, when we're in sinful behavior, do we want to have somebody come up and be like, you're sinful. Do we enjoy those moments? No, we want to be like, can you just leave me alone and let me go about my business? And so that's, they're doing that to the nation. But what's interesting is uh, if you were to read into 2 Kings, um, did I write it down? Yeah, okay. So if you were to write in your notes 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that's actually the transition process. So now Elijah and Elisha have been living life together. Elisha has been modeling after the life of Elijah, this prophet of God. He has this mantle that's been passed to him. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is when Elijah gets taken up to, to meet God. Right? He doesn't die, he just whoop, vanishes. It's actually a really beautiful process that I would recommend that you read. But what Elijah is giving to Elisha is his cloak, his mantle. And do you remember, well, surely you've seen the the Ten Commandments, the movie, right? We're like, uh, Moses, like, opens up the seas with the staff, and it's like this powerful moment. Well, similarly, Elijah takes the cloak, and he strikes it, and the water opens. It's this symbolic gesture of who Elijah was, I now am. But here's something really interesting. Um, When Elijah and Elisha are alone, before Elijah gets taken away, verse 9 says, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken taken from you. And Elisha said, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. So it's not just that Elijah is like, I'm going to fill this mantle, or excuse me, Elijah, I'm going to fill this cloak. He's saying, not only do I want what you have, cloak, mantle, power, and authority, responsibility, more importantly, he's saying, I want a double portion of that. He's asking for seconds. Not only does he want to fill in the mantle, he wants to outgrow the mantle. It's a pretty powerful statement. It's also really scary because Elijah was running for his life a lot. So inevitably, the symbolic gesture is if these things happen to you, so um, Elijah responds in verse 10, He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. So as they continue walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which I love, separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Verse 12, Elijah kept watching and crying out, Father, Father. Notice, how does, he re- how does he call out? Not his name, Father, Father. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He's in mourning. Then what did he do? He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. So here, I mean, do you see this? He rips his own clothes and he picks up Elijah's cloak and then walks in the power and authority and responsibility. For me, that's a powerful declaration. It's a transition moment. And throughout the history of Israel and throughout the church, you know, starting from really kings, we could see this, but moving on, there's this transition where God's word is received or rejected by his people, and there are people that stand there in the gap and say, this isn't acceptable. This isn't what life with God is meant to be. But it was still in the context of the law. So the greatest transition is one that we can see from the Old Testament into the New Testament, is that rather than just people standing in the gap and trying to fulfill the law but failing because inevitably they're imperfect, we see Jesus comes. And not only does he stand in the gap, he fills the gap. I've been looking around my house because I have to move soon, and I'm looking at all the holes in the wall, right? I'm like, man, i got to do this back over there. It's a process, isn't it, to fill the gap, not just to stand into it, to be so perfect that there's no holes for anything to seep out, no air gaps, no pockets. It's completely full. And Jesus did that perfectly. And his declaration of this perfect fulfillment of the law was to ultimately die on the cross for our sins. And it's completely victorious. We hold no more debt. Past, present, future. That's the gospel, right? Right? That's the good news that we hold on to in good and in bad. Jesus didn't just transition us. He reoriented what this looks like. And that's where this passage in uh, Luke comes in. Now, before I I get there, um, one of the most powerful, uh, I guess, I mean, for me it was a proclamation. One of the most powerful moments in, in Omaha and I know Tom and I kind of looked at each other afterwards. Was uh, a teaching, bless you, uh, by a person named Grace Johnson. And Grace um, is probably close to my age. And in her picture, she's got this long brown hair. Um, and when we saw her, the first thing that you'll notice is that her head was shaved, like GI Jane style, right? And that, ar- that automatically threw a lot of people off. They were already disoriented. And um, Grace was in a really challenging season over the past few years. She had been in vocational ministry just like me for a really long time, and then she stepped away to be a mom and a wife. So she was in the season of a lot of reflection, just kind of like I was in a season being in Baltimore and reflecting on my life and those kind of things. And one of the stories that she told was about the way that God had spoken to her because, again, what was the theme? Well, it was listen up. And one of the, the, the stories was the ways that God spoke to her in really specific ways, and it involved, uh, interestingly enough, one of those yellow rain jackets. And I, immediately I'm thinking of Elijah and Elisha in this cloak and stuff like that. And I, I won't tell her whole, whole story because I don't feel like I could do it justice, but effectively, what I'm explaining is that what God was speaking to her over a period of time, it was, a, it was five years, if I remember right, five year period of time. Somebody had told her, you're going to see this yellow jacket. I don't know what it's going to mean or anything like you, but it'll make sense, you know. And she's like, okay, whatever, weirdo. Uh, Just like people would respond to a prophet. Five years later, there's this whole scene with a yellow rain jacket. And what God spoke to her in that was that a lot of times as we're walking through life in our relationship with God, and I, I will butcher this, but I'm going to try my best, is that rather than like soaking in and hearing what God is doing, we cover our heads with shame. Did I do a good enough job? Okay, I'm getting there. We cover our heads in shame. And rather than drinking, remember a few months ago I talked about just sitting in the mist and letting God just rain down his love on you? But so often we put our hoods up. And that's what she was pointing out. She had realized that had this, this hood was the law for her. It was religious lifestyle. It was doing things in order to get God's approval. When God is saying, hold up, take this down. What are you doing? Delight in my love for you and your belovedness. Shame doesn't have to orient who you are and what you do anymore. My love does that for you. And I thought that was such a profound moment because here is this, this woman who's already in an uncomfortable way. She shaved her head for crying out loud. And she's directly challenging, there were 700 and some odd people that were all church leaders, whether they were pastors or worship leaders or whatever their role was in the church, they were all leaders. And she's challenging them not to do ministry better, not to do life better, not to be more religious, but to live in God's love. And you could just see the tension in the room and mouths were being dropped Because you could tell so many people hadn't heard that in a really long time. And so they emphasized all week long, listening up is effectively leaning into your belovedness with God. It's not what you do. It's who he is, what he's done, and who you are as a result of that. Not what you do, but what he's done, and who you are as a result of that. (laughs) How many of us live our lives oriented around what we do? Yeah, thanks for those that are willing to raise their hands. I know I do all the time. What I do, that's my value. That's my worth. But the problem is, is that when I do that and I don't do it well, what inevitably happens? Shame, loss, frustration, anger, all of these things. What I did, I didn't do it well. Therefore, because my identity is wrapped up in that, I'm a broken person. See what I mean? If my way to say this is who I am is what I do, when I don't do it well, that means I'm broken. Not the situation's broken, not the relationship's broken. I am broken. It's putting that hood up, like Grace was saying. For Elijah and Elisha, it would be, Casting off the mantle, which is a symbolic covering of God. It's to say, I am covered, I am God's person. It's for them to take it off and just to go about, well, I'm a prophet of God. It's all about what we do. And culture really celebrates that, doesn't it? what we do, what we do, how we do it, how many followers we have in social media or, or what kind of leadership position we have or, or the next promotion or the next house, right? And Jesus says emphatically, that's not at all what's important. If anything, best case scenario, it's a means to my end, which is for people to know his love wrought out clearly on the cross. And so here, this, these passages, um, I was thinking about this, this idea of old robes, right? How many of you have, like, a favorite sweatshirt or T-shirt that you just, maybe it's a pair of underwear, let's be honest, right? <laughs> Should have got rid of it a long time ago, but you won't. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand for that one. Um, but you have, but let's, let's talk about that for a minute. This shirt, how many of you have, like, a shirt or a sweatshirt, just so I can see? Or a pair of pants, right? Like, everybody, everybody has that, it's a th- yeah, yeah. Thriving t shirts They are. It's like sleeping on a cloud. Um, why do we love those? Well, we started, it's so soft. It's broken in. It's comfortable. Generally speaking, at least for me, when I look at it, it has a history. Like maybe, would, maybe for depending on the the type of shirt maybe it's like something that you wore in college or you know whatever it could be there's a history behind it you can look at each stain and remember more or less how that stain got there right it's got battle scars and it's cozy and it's comfy but is that something that you would wear out to like house of god on a sunday morning right. well uh, okay <laughs> maybe <laughs> some of us well yeah okay uh. She's still young. She's still young. Would you wear it at a wedding celebration? Probably not. You wouldn't wear it. Maybe. Okay, you're the outlier in this example. Okay, I, and I like that bowling shirt. Yeah, maybe. I can't see you wearing that at a wedding, though. Um, but we wouldn't, right? But here is this thing that, that Jesus is saying is I'm doing a new thing. Have you ever gotten a new shirt that, that you know it's your size, but it just doesn't feel right? You're like, you know you need it, or or the the t shirts with the tag that just like scrapes on your neck, and you're like, Can I rip this off quick enough? And then you cut it and it still itches somehow? <laughs> it's a new shirt that you need. And you need it because you bought it. Well, sometimes we buy stuff we don't need, granted. But oftentimes, like for celebration moments, like we rent tuxes and all that, right? Like, get the dress, we lose weight to fit into it, right? Because you recognize a new thing is happening. And new things require new things, not old things. And that's really what I was reflecting on with, with LCMC. Yes, this new shirt may be uncomfortable. Yes, the tag may itch, but it's still a new thing for a new thing. We can either look at our old ways or we can look to the things that God's doing in our midst right now. And that's really what Jesus is hes challenging them with in that Luke chapter as he's looking at the old things and he's saying, which was the old religious way of of fasting. That was the example, right? Like, what is a better way for me to show how holy I am than to fast, right? Like, if people want to know how... How how religious I am. Let me fast, or it's offerings. You know, make the loudest sound as I throw my money in. And he's saying, they're like, but Jesus, why don't your people fast? Because it's a new thing's happening. People are, are people. He's not saying that the old is bad or that it's evil. Uh, Tom, can you put this up? This is something that I've really been reflecting on this week. It's a, the gospel reveals the incompatibility of the old and the new. That's not my thought. That's inspired by James Brooks, who's a theologian uh, who wrote specifically on this Luke chapter. But what Jesus is saying in this text is the old ways are incompatible with the new ways. Why? Because I fulfilled the old ways. It doesn't mean fasting doesn't have value, but it's not going to be because you're more religious. It's going to be because you're taking time to reorient yourself around the truth, truth of Jesus Christ. It's a form of worship rather than religion. And I just absolutely love that. I was like, yes, the gospel reveals how incompatible the old is with the new. I remember growing up, I was in love with the Civil War. And I never forget, and it was just such an odd fact to remember, how frequently soldiers would have to redarn their socks because they marched so much. But why did that happen? Because they were redarning their socks with old material. And so it just kept on tearing apart over and over and over again. They needed a new thing, and they were clamoring for it. They're begging, give us socks, give us new clothes. You know, we got blisters on our feet. We're bleeding. And that's what you, we keep on looking to the old ways when God's saying, what are the new things that I'm doing in your midst? And I was really challenged by this. How many of you have heard of uh, Westboro Baptist Church? If you haven't heard of them You've seen them on the news. It is a small church. They go outside of funerals. They go outside of uh, gay pride parades, all these kind of different things, and they hold up signs. And they're some of the most explicitly offensive signs that you could possibly put out there. And if you look at the size of the church, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers. It didn't take time to look. It's not a big church. It's not a mega church. But you know what's striking to me? is the world, not just USA, the world knows about Westboro Baptists and their message, which is strongly offensive. But then I look at House of God and I say, you know what, (laughs) we're a small church. But, what? (laughs) But with love. See, these are the new things like We keep on getting caught up in our Sunday morning service and how many people are going to be here. Butts and budgets, that's what it said in church leadership. How many butts are filling the chair and, how many, how, and how's our budget looking? And we get caught up in that. Westboro Baptist doesn't care about that. They got a message that they're going to get out and they're, they're, they're going to get it out. And I think and I look around this room and I can't tell you how many times people have visited this church Just for, you know, they're in the area or something like that, and they say, you know, the astounding thing is, is the love, how welcome I felt. And I think, couldn't that exponentially impact our communities? Maybe we'll never hit the news. I mean, we've already been in the newspaper, but who cares about that for a moment? If nobody knew who House of God Lutheran Church was, but they knew absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ loved them so much that he would die on a cross for them to give them a new way of life, wouldn't that be worth it? 100% of the time. And so I look at these verses and I say, yeah, maybe this clothes is a little bit itchy for us because it's new. And we're so used to that shame and we're so used to the anger, the hatred, or the sin, or the sickness. We're used to that. And it's like that, that sweatshirt that we have, our favorite t shirt But maybe we need to stop breaking in the old stuff and start breaking in the new stuff. Maybe we need to start putting on those new shirts and wearing them in a little bit and filling them out and stop being so preoccupied with this old stuff. Throughout church history, we see moments of clear and explicit reformation. The Lutheran church is in existence because of reformation. It's because Martin Luther said, I'm not going to wear this old mantle of the past I'm going to nail on some doors a new way of looking at this. And realistically, was it new? No, because it's the gospel truth. It was older than the piece of paper that he nailed, older than the ink, older than the doors. That was truth. We're going through a transition, whether we like it or not. And we may be the exact numeric quantity that we are right now, 10 years from now. But I have to believe that if we are people, who, the people that I think that we are, which are people of love and of sacrifice, is we're like the little kids that are wearing the shoes that are too big for them because our shoes keep growing. That's why I, I marvel at. Chances are, Titus and Judah, they're probably going to wear size 15 or size 17 just because of their frame. We're never, I, I don't want us to ever fill in our shoes because we keep growing. And it's not going to look, it's not going to be reflected on Sunday mornings. But it'll be reflected in our workplaces, in our communities, in our relationships. I believe that. I'm convinced of that. The question is, like Elijah, will we pick up that mantle and then grow and surpass that? Like Jesus challenges these people that are used to an old way Are we going to keep on sowing old things to the new things that God's doing? Are we going to keep on trying to put new wine into old wineskins? It's just going to get blown up and destroyed. So we need to explore. Now, I say from a personal level, what I'm exploring through is uh, these old shames or these old angers or these old things that somehow I've been captivated by them, obsessed with them, rather than the new things that God's doing. What, what's going on with you? Where are you putting your hood up? Originally, I told you, and I know I've been talking a lot, and thank you for listening. Um, originally, I told you I was gonna, um, I was gonna do a series on Colossians, but as I was praying and reflecting, I said, like, we've got like four or five weeks left before, and not including Pastor Joe, and that's just not enough time to do justice to that book. And I was like, how do we close well this year, this, this calendar year, which is, I mean, mid-October? Are you kidding me? Right? So Brett, actually, I gave him some cards, and um, there's pens in front of, of you. I want to know who we are as House of God. I feel like there are some questions in this room that are begging to be answered, that there are things that you are wrestling with, that you are struggling through. And I've got like four or five weeks, at least until the closing of the year, I want to end this calendar year well. I want to look at these things that you recognize in yourself or in this church community that's saying we aren't who we could be. I'm not who I could be. Maybe it's shame, and we need to revisit that. Maybe it's sickness, and we need to revisit that. Maybe it's what does it mean to be the church in 2019 going into 2020. I don't know. But I'm promising and committing to you that I will read each of these cards, and I'm gonna pray through. Hopefully there are some themes, so I don't have like 30 different topics to choose from, right, and prioritize it. But I would love for you to write down, what is something, you, and it, it's anonymous. Don't put your name there. I don't need your name. But what I do know, need to know is, what are you struggling through, or what are you working through? What do you, what do you, you keep on hitting these questions, these walls? I can't commit that I'm gonna have the answer, but I can commit that I'll wrestle with you in that. Can you take a moment? Is, is what I, sometimes I get all worked up in my head. And I'm like, yeah, this is getting communicated really well. And then I, it comes out of my mouth and it sounds like trash. So is its is what I'm saying, am I communicating that clearly? Something to, to write down on that card? Something that you're struggling through? Something, a question that you may have? Then I am going to, what I'm going to do with that is I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray about it, and then I'm just going to do a sermon series to close the, the year well that deal with some of these questions that we have or these conflicts that we have or these things that we need to understand more about our faith. Does that make sense? Is there any question? No. Okay, so can you please just take a moment? Again, it, it's 100% anonymous. I don't know all of your handwriting well enough to guess. Yeah, and then, uh, thank you, um, and then hold on to it, and when we do offering, we'll just put it into the basket, and I'll get it. So just take a moment. What is holding you back? What do you feel like maybe holding back, house of God? Notice I didn't do a question this week. Never mind. (laughs) All right, I'm just... Scripture tells us that the world will know us by what? Our fasting, our religious behavior... By our love. By our love. And the only way that uh, we can know how to share our love is if we know that we're loved. I'll give you a couple more seconds and then we will transition into a time of communion together. All right. Is that enough space for you? Is that good? Okay. Actually, let me pull it back a little bit. Um, they will know us by our love. Um, one of the points that Grace made that I'm still processing in my personal life is that Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? Do you know what they are? Like, how could the law be summarized? Love God and love your neighbor. And she reminded us, 700 flesh church leaders, that was still in the context of the law. And what she was pointing out is, and this is, these are my words, is that we can't possibly do well if we don't know who we are. We don't know our belovedness. And the way that we reorient ourselves around our belovedness is that Jesus gives us the table and he says, this is my body broken for you and my blood shed for you. This is how much you're loved. Um, So would you join me? We're going to, um, you can either just close your eyes and and listen and reflect. Uh, You can follow along in the passage. That's what I do so I don't get it wrong. Um, Go ahead, Tom. So this is from 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Reflect on these words, the new covenant, a new thing through his body and his blood. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer?